it's hard to imagine how this withdrawal could have been done in a in a worse fashion than the way that President Biden did it. And so that's the big takeaway here is that it didn't have to happen this way. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, August 21st. I'm Samantha Sherris. And that was Jerry Dunleavy, co-author of the new book, Kabul, the untold story of Biden's fiasco and the American warriors who fought to the end. Jerry, alongside his co-author and Afghanistan veteran James Hassan, joined today's episode of the Daily Signal podcast to discuss their new book, the number one takeaway they want people to have after reading their book, what they found to be the most shocking part about the fall of Afghanistan through their research for their book, and much more. Before we get to our conversation, I want to tell you a little bit more about another podcast here at the Heritage Foundation. How do you take America back? It starts with ideas, ideas we take on offense to reclaim America. That's why I can't recommend the Kevin Roberts show highly enough. It's a deep dive on critical issues that plague our nation, plus conversations with high-profile guests from across the movement. It's a roadmap on how we can protect our nation from bad ideas and get it back on track. You can find The Kevin Roberts Show wherever you get your podcasts or go to heritage.org slash podcasts. Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan are joining today's episode of the Daily Signal podcast. Jerry is an investigator for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, specifically investigating the Afghanistan withdrawal. And James is an attorney and Afghanistan veteran who served as an army captain. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So I wanted to also mention that you are both the authors of the book Kabul, the untold story of Biden's fiasco and the American warriors who fought to the end, which was just released on August 15th. Tell us a little bit more about your book and why you wanted to write it. Yeah. So our book is, I think, a pretty damning expose on the Biden administration's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. And you know, the, the main conclusion from our book, and, and we conducted hundreds of interviews, reviewed <laughs> tens of thousands of pages of documents during the course of this. And, you know, our conclusion is that questions get raised about President Biden's age, his fitness, whether he's controlling everything that's going on in the White House. And often I think those some of those questions can be legitimate. But in this instance, this was President Joe Biden's decision. And this decision was a disaster. It ended with many hundreds, well over a thousand Americans left behind, tens of thousands of Afghan allies left behind, and 13 Americans and 200 Afghans killed and dozens of Americans injured in a terrorist attack by ISIS-K that our book demonstrates in a variety of ways was ultimately preventable. And, you know, we James and I teamed up to, to write Kabul um, because it was important that this story be told. Um, it's important uh, that the stories of those 13 service members be told, that the stories of the thousands of service members who were on the ground uh, at Kabul airport in impossible circumstances, having to rely because of Biden's terrible decisions on the Taliban to provide security outside the airport, 
It's important to tell those stories, and it's also important that there is some accountability here because there has been none. No one has been held accountable. No one's been fired. No one's been demoted. There's been no accountability. President Biden doesn't want there to be any accountability, but we think that our book can provide some accountability for this disaster. Absolutely. And James, I wanted to ask you, um, as I mentioned, you served in Afghanistan um, as an army captain. First of all, thank you for your service. Um, and, and second of all, what was it like for you to see the Taliban takeover um, you know, that we saw two years ago having served there? Yeah, I, I can say uh, unequivocally it was a punch in the gut. Um, and I know for at least all the other Afghan veterans that I've spoken to, uh, you know, it was it was a similar punch in the gut for them as well. Um, and especially then seeing the, uh, you know, the administration repeatedly say that the, the Taliban were now our, our partners, quote unquote, that they were being, quote, businesslike and professional. Um, when, of course, this is the same Taliban that we uh, you know, just spent 20 years fighting. Uh, you know, I, I lost, you know, people I know. Um, you know, over there, uh, uh, or you know, people I know um, passed away over there, and a lot of other people um, in in my circumstances who served there, you know, had the same kind of experience, and it, that that's a uh, it's a very difficult thing to reconcile. And uh, you know, writing this book was an absolute honor, uh, but it was it was also, you know, it, it was difficult also to to do in part. Um, just to see that be absolutely whitewashed. And uh, I think the most difficult part about it was that it was all so preventable, as Jerry mentioned, uh, in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. Can you speak more about uh, some of the ways that it could have been prevented, um, what you've discovered throughout your research? Sure. Uh, I think you know, the, the, the original sin was abandoning Bagram Air Base, and I think that's been discussed quite a lot. And there are there are plenty of reasons for that. Uh, you know, number one, that it, it was, uh, you know, it is highly defensible. Mm -hmm. uh, it it uh, uh, it uh, it had all of the abilities to conduct an evacuation, multiple runways, uh, you know, and all of the enabling assets that you would need to be able to conduct an evacuation of this magnitude uh, versus a single strip airfield in the middle of a dense urban population center. Uh, and as we lay out in Kabul, uh, the decision to abandon Bagram and rely wholly on Hamid Karzai International Airport uh, was a, a political decision because President Biden wanted uh, you know, under 1,000 troops there, basically almost commensurate with what you would have in any other country where we have an embassy, where we have you know, diplomatic security. And you can't hold Bagram Airfield with you know 600 troops, which mm -hmm. were uh, what was on the ground at the time, uh, but there's one other way, just uh, it, with Bagram in particular, where this whole thing uh, could have been prevented, and that is that the suicide bomber who eventually made his way to Abbey Gate, um, a man named uh, Abdul Rahman Alagari, his identity has been confirmed by the intelligence committee, but the Biden administration has never once said his name. Uh, this individual was in custody at a prison called Parwan Prison at Bagram Airfield. If we had not abandoned Bagram, on August 26th, he would still be behind bars versus wearing a suicide vest. And one thing to add to that um, is that 
you know, the very first thing that the Taliban did when they took over uh, Bagram, which we never should have abandoned for the reasons that James just explained. But the very first thing that the Taliban did when they took over Par uh, Bagram was to free all of the prisoners at, at, that, at that prison, Parwan prison on Bagram airfield. And that prison was filled with not just dozens of al-Qaeda fighters and thousands of Taliban fighters, but filled with something like 2,000 ISIS-K uh, fighters as well. And it's interesting because President Joe Biden um, continued to say, look, the Taliban and ISIS-K, they are mortal enemies. Um, he, was, he was saying this throughout August 2021 to kind of uh, reassure the American people that, you know, it's it's somehow a good idea to try to rely on the Taliban to provide security at Kabul airport because, you know, the Taliban have a vested interest in stopping ISIS-K from hitting us because the Taliban and ISIS-K don't like each other. And that's true. The Taliban and ISIS-K don't like each other. They, they do fight each other, but they hate us more. Um, and there's a long history uh, in Afghanistan of the Taliban, specifically the Haqqani elements of the Taliban, helping ISIS-K carry out and conduct attacks in Afghanistan, targeting the former Afghan government, targeting American troops. And the place where those uh, that sort of coordination or collusion between uh, the Taliban and ISIS-K, the place where that took place most often was in Kabul itself. And so, you know, relying on the Taliban was uh, terrible for many reasons. And they showed that it was going the Taliban showed us why it was going to be a terrible idea all the way back on August 15th when they freed all those ISIS-K prisoners, replenished ISIS-K as a terrorist organization and freed the guy who then made his way to Abbey Gate and killed those 13 Americans. I wanted to also ask you about, uh, you know, throughout your research and the different interviews that you were conducting, the most shocking thing that you learned. I know there was a ton of media coverage um, as this was all unfolding two years ago, but through, you know, your research for the book, what did you find to be the most shocking part about the fall of Afghanistan? Well, I'll take this, and I'm sure that James has some to add as well. The most shocking thing to me were the stories that we learned from the U.S. service members, the Marines and the other troops who were on the ground at Abbey Gate about what it was like for them there and what the Taliban was doing. Um, these these stories, these, these massive crowds of people, desperate crowds, obviously desperate to get out of a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Um, you had people being trampled to death in the crowds. You had uh, babies being being suffocated to death in the crowds. You had people who were so desperate to to get their kids or their babies out that they would, you know, just try to hand them over to Marines. Sometimes they would try to toss their kids or toss their babies over the wall and over the razor wire um, to get them through. And sometimes the kids would land on razor wire and die. You had. Uh, desperate Afghans who, you know, didn't qualify to get out, um, asking Marines to just to just kill them. Like, please, just we can't go back to the Taliban. They'd, they'd grab the barrels of the Marines' weapons and try and pull them up their forehead and say, just kill me here because it's going to be better than what the Taliban's going to do to me then. Um, and, and to give you a sense of what the Taliban was doing, um, you know, Joe Biden and his administration and other people on the ground and generals were saying that the Taliban was businesslike, the Taliban was professional, they were helping us. 
look, the, yeah, as we detail in Kabul, um, the Taliban was turning Americans away from the gate, was blocking Americans from getting through, was doing everything that it could oftentimes to block our Afghan allies from getting through. Americans were beaten by the Taliban. Uh, Afghan allies and Afghan civilians were beaten by the Taliban, and Afghans were being killed by the Taliban, executed by the Taliban in view of the Marines guarding the gate. And these Marines, because of the rules of engagement that were imposed, in large part because of this terrible situation that Joe Biden had put these troops in, the rules of engagement did not allow them to take action against the Taliban to stop that brutality. So that just gives you a sense of what these Marines were dealing with. And I'll just add, though, despite all of all of this, despite the position that these troops were put in because of President Joe Biden and his bad decision making, within the incredible, insane strictures that these troops had and these Marines had, they performed admirably. They uh, rescued thousands of Americans. They rescued thousands of our Afghan allies, pulling them out of this, these desperate crowds, getting them through and getting them onto planes. But unfortunately, because of President Joe Biden, um, tons of Americans and tons of Afghan allies were left behind and tens of thousands of, of those Afghan allies are, are still stuck under Taliban rule. And there are also, you know, right now as we speak, Americans who are being held hostage by the Taliban. Do you know how many Americans are still in Afghanistan? It's a good question. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Biden administration has, has misled and lied about this uh, from the start. So when the withdrawal was completed and final troops left at the end of August 2021, the Biden administration was trying to say, oh, there's just a very small number of Americans left behind. And by the way, even leaving a small number of Americans left behind is a dereliction of duty and a broken promise. Like, let's just make that very clear. But on top of it, it is not true that it was just a small number of Americans left behind. I mean, we, we've been able to confirm that there were many hundreds, well over a thousand Americans left behind. And when the, the administration was saying at the time, you know, it's at most 100. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then then they would come back over and say, oh, well, we rescued uh, 150 more. So now there's just around 100 left. And they would keep playing that game over and over. Right. And and uh, and Secretary Antony Blinken uh, just this week uh, admitted that uh, since the final U.S. troops left at the end of August 2021, 900 Americans um, have had to flee the country since then. And I need to point out as well. So, you know, so that just shows that the Biden administration was, was lying to begin with. I need to point out that a lot of these ongoing efforts to get yes. Americans out and to get our Afghan allies out, these are still being done by some of the very same outside private veteran-led groups who had to step in to get Americans and Afghan allies out during the chaotic evacuation as well, because the State Department wasn't prepared then, and it still isn't prepared now to do its basic duty of getting Americans out and getting the Afghans that we made promises to out of the country. And you know, just to, to add to that, uh, we, you know, we detail in Kabul about some of the efforts that were made by private 
these private groups to get people out of the country and how at times they tried to coordinate with the State Department and the State Department was MIA and so they did it on their own um, and in certain circumstances um, including you know, rescues of, of Afghan allies as well the the administration would then try and take credit after the fact uh, and, and pretend that it was through their efforts and uh, so there's there's really kind of this this whole other layer mm-hmm. of these um, yeah, heroes there's no other way to describe them who emptied their 401ks to you stand up operations to to keep the promises that the administration had broken. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about, um, I know you just had a piece out for The Spectator about uh, the role that COVID-19 protocol played um, in the withdrawal efforts. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this. Sure, I can handle that. Um, it, it started, you know, back in uh, kind of just throughout the entire process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it definitely affected the, the uh, Marines and, and soldiers who were redeploying into Afghanistan on day's notice. Uh, but it, it, uh, it, was, it was present throughout. And I, I can give you an example of, of both. So the, uh, the embassy actually went into lockdown. The US Embassy in Kabul went into lockdown in June, over June 2021. Um, two months before the country fell uh, because of some COVID cases. Mm -hmm. And they shut down all visa processing. They shut down all, uh, basically almost all um, services that an embassy would provide. And so there are stories of um, Afghan SIV holders, people who are interpreters, who uh, had served alongside of the U.S. for years, even decades, who were there, they scheduled to show up for final approval to leave the country and had their their appointments canceled because the embassy locked down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once the embassy reopened, it was rescheduled for you know dates like September 18th, which by September 18th, there was no longer an embassy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of those individuals are still stuck in Afghanistan today. But in terms on an operational level, um, the, the COVID-19 uh, vax mandate that the Biden administration put in place also deprived some of those reinforcing units of key personnel or even made it very difficult for them to plan for um, even conduct basic planning uh, before they went in. And uh, two examples of that phenomenon would be, um, we spoke with a lot of members of the 82nd Airborne and across several different platoons, they didn't even know who they were taking and who they were leaving behind uh, within 24 hours out of leaving, and they had to reshuffle their manpower, you know, three to four times within 24 hours to try and, uh, you know, place leaders in different positions because uh, they didn't know who was coming and who was going. And for one of the Marine squads that we spoke to, uh, in one of in two one, the the Marine battalion that uh, you know suffered all those horrendous casualties at Abbey Gate, uh, they this squad in particular. Um, was deprived of their squad leader and both of their team leaders. So there are three senior leaders uh, who were not allowed to deploy alongside of them because they were not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it extends across the board to senior intelligence analysts, even a surgeon. Um, it, it, it's really kind of an untalked about aspect of this whole thing, and we detail all of that in Kabul. I wanted to... Um 
shift a little bit and, and talk a little bit more about the airport bombing that killed 13 U.S. service members, uh, over 150 Afghan civilians. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary of um, that tragedy as well, um, August 26th. I, I know you talked to many of the families uh, for this book, and I wanted to just, you know, give you the chance to, you know, talk a little bit more about what those conversations were like with the families. Yeah, well, I I had the the privilege and the honor to talk to um, a number of the families um, of the Gold Star families of these 13 service members uh, while we were writing the book. And I also currently um, have the privilege to, to speak with them in, in my uh, in my current role, um, helping uh, investigate all of this for the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, and I'll, I'll just add the disclaimer that, you know, I did the book in my personal c- capacity before I joined the committee. But, uh, you know, in these conversations with the families, look, they want answers. They want accountability. Um, I think that they've been deprived of a lot of answers, and they've certainly been deprived of any accountability whatsoever. Um, In terms of the stories that they tell, I mean, they all have sort of a very similar story related to their interactions with President Joe Biden. Um, Obviously, we've all seen the images of President Biden at the dignified transfer ceremony at Dover, where the, uh, you know, the caskets for the service members were uh, being brought in and President Biden kept checking his watch, kept checking his watch um, as if he had somewhere better to be. Um, You know, at least that was the impression that it gave um, on TV. And it's certainly the impression that it gave to the Gold Star families as well. Um, A lot of the families also tell a similar story about their personal interaction with him that he didn't uh, seem to know the name um, or the names of their individual, uh, you know, uh, family members who'd lost their lives, and that he immediately um, would just bring up his 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 own son, uh, Bo Biden, um, and the families were pretty put off by that because obviously President uh, Biden's son, Bo Biden, uh, his death was obviously tragic. He died of brain cancer in 2015, but you know, he had he had served uh, in Iraq many, many years before um, he didn't die on the battlefield. And, you know, he him, President Biden, trying to compare his situation to the situation, his families hit them hard for many reasons, including the fact that, look, they're they many of them believe that their sons and daughters lost their lives because of the bad decisions and incompetence of President Biden himself. Um, And so, you know, the Gold Star families want answers. They want the truth. And uh, I encourage everyone uh, to actually keep an eye out for this. Uh, The Gold Star, a lot of the Gold Star families are going to be coming to Capitol Hill, to the nation's capital, to tell their stories um, at a roundtable on August 29th. Um, So just a few days after the anniversary of the bombing, um, Chairman McCall of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and other members of Congress are going to be there so that the American people can can hear their the stories of these Gold Star families. And if I can add one thing to that, mm-hmm. um, it's that, as we mentioned in, in Kabul, Joe Biden still has never said the names of the 13 uh, who, were, who were killed, not on Memorial Day, not on the anniversary of the bombing, never. Um, and that, that to them is, is a particular kind of knife to the heart, mm-hmm. I think. Definitely. We, when we talk about accountability, uh, you were talking earlier about how no one's been held accountable. What would accountability look like 
to you and, and who specifically would you like to see be held accountable? At a minimum, it would start with uh, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin uh, resigning or you know, being fired. Um, but accountability, of course, to that degree requires the Biden administration to admit that it made a mistake. And it doesn't want to do that. It still describes just bafflingly describes this as, as a quote unquote success. Yeah, I mean, I think that he nailed it. Look, uh, the, the State Department especially and Antony Blinken especially, they botched this. They didn't they didn't plan. Um, they didn't have a plan about how to get uh, Americans out and to get all of our Afghan allies out. And it showed. Mm-hmm. And but at the end of the day, uh, it's not just uh, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin, but it's President Joe Biden himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was his decision on August 14th in his speech where he decided to do a essentially conditionless withdrawal, a conditionless surrender, it, t- it turned out to be to the to the Taliban. Um, it was his decision to set September 11th, 2021, bafflingly as the uh, as the date uh, for uh, for the withdrawal to be completed by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Now, this is crazy for many reasons. Um, I guess he wanted he, it was obviously political. He wanted some sort of political victory out of this. But what he ended up getting was on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, he ended up getting the Taliban being back in charge of Afghanistan after 20 years. But picking 9-11 as a withdrawal date um, was political, and it certainly wasn't strategic. It was the opposite of strategic because September is the middle of Afghanistan's fighting season. So, you know, the way that the, the terrain and the weather is in Afghanistan during the spring and summer, that is when there's lots of fighting. But the late fall and the winter, so much snow, mountainous terrain, um, it's hard for the Taliban fighters to move between Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's tough just generally to do fighting. But we know that the, the Taliban every year is always at its strongest and most capable on the battlefield during the spring and the summer. And that's the exact moment that President Joe Biden decided to pull U.S. troops and not just pull U.S. troops, but pull U.S. troops, contractors, advisors, intelligence, logistics, aid, ISR, everything that the Afghan military had been built around and had been trained to rely upon. And so as the U.S. is pulling out, we're also kind of knocking the legs out from under an already very shaky Afghan military. And the Taliban, very predictably, as we pulled out, the Taliban moved in, sort of the red blob sweeping across the country Mm -hmm. and taking Kabul in rapid fashion before we'd gotten Americans out, before we'd gotten Afghan allies out. And ultimately, the decision came from the top. It came from President Biden. So that's who ultimately needs to be held accountable for all of this. Uh, just one final question for both of you. Uh, what's the number one takeaway you want people to have after reading your book? Uh, I'll start. And I think first and foremost, that people need to understand the full scope of the story, which we lay out in Kabul, uh, so that it never happens again. And uh, and secondly, that the men and women on the ground did some incredible things and endured some incredible excruciating things uh and and their stories need to be told and uh you know in large part in their own words which is what we try to do and all that i would add to that is you know i definitely encourage people to read our book cobble because there there is a lot that we 
uh, found out. And there are stories of uh, incredible heroism by the Americans on the ground and by private veteran-led groups stepping up where the State Department was falling down. Um, but there are also some some heart-wrenching and some terrible stories in there as well. And um, our biggest conclusion from, from writing the whole book is that it, it, it didn't have to go this way. Mm-hmm. Whatever your thoughts were about the war in Afghanistan generally and withdrawing or not, you know, this withdrawal could not <laughs> it's hard to imagine how this withdrawal could have been done in a in a worse fashion than the way that president biden did it and so that's the big takeaway here is that it didn't have to happen this way and and on top of that there have been ripple effects because of this disastrous withdrawal i mean we make a very strong case in the book that uh the the way that the U.S. and NATO were reeling, absolutely reeling and, and in, in a shambles because of this Afghanistan debacle was very likely the final push that Putin needed mm-hmm. to invade, uh, to do a full invasion of Ukraine. And obviously, this is still a war that is devastating um, the country of Ukraine to this very day. Mm-hmm. Um, China also sought to exploit uh, this as well, both with Propaganda, they like to call it the Kabul moment. Propaganda directed at the Taiwanese to tell them, look, you can't count on the Americans. Don't bother fighting because America won't be there with you. This is this is the propaganda that they're pushing to Taiwan as they, you know, look to invade uh, Taiwan to try and take it. And, um, you know, it's a more dangerous world now than it was. Um, and the the debacle in Afghanistan played a part in that. Well, Jerry and James, thank you both so much for joining us. I'll definitely include a link to your book in the show notes uh, so people can check it out, buy it, learn more about what happened uh, two years ago in Afghanistan. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank Thank you you very much. Really appreciate it. And that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan. We've left a link for Jerry and James' book in the show notes if you want to check that out. And in the meantime, if you haven't had the chance, make sure you subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read and appreciate all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great Monday, and we'll be back with you all this afternoon for top news. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.